Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's the Wonky Show, and believe it or not, we're in Helsinki, in Finland. Uh, we'll chat OFS expectations on harassment and sexual assault. There's a new happy report out on language learning, and we'll reflect on a week of roaming around the Baltics. It's all coming up. Universities are not happy with what is happening with uh, uh, with the government right now, or what is happening within the state right now. It's not pleasing anybody, uh, least of all the students and the universities. Um, but within the universities, actually, it doesn't stop them from... Uh, Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into higher education policy, people and politics. I'm Jim Dickinson and just to explain, this week has been the Wonky SU's European study tour to the Baltics and Finland, where we visited 15 universities and student organisations across four countries by road and sea and met almost 100 friends and partners from here in Eastern and Northern Europe. So, here in Helsinki to discuss this week's developments, we have uh, five big names from the student movement. Uh, First up... Uh, Eve Alcock is president at Bath Students' Union. Eve, your highlight of the week, please. Probably the women in Latvia that uh, led the National Union and the university that we visited because they were pretty badass. And next up, Vicky Saywood-Reed is the education officer at Kent Union. Vicky, your highlight of the week. Um, probably those at Tallinn University. They really had their heads screwed on straight, knew exactly what they were doing and were so passionate about their jobs. It was really nice to see. Excellent. And Katie Smith is the president at Newcastle University Students' Union. Katie, your big highlight? Uh, Knowing that across the globe we all face the same problems. Oh, gets you right here. Uh, (laughs) Jazz Nesbitt-Larking is president at Bath Spa Students' Union. Jazz, your big highlight? Um, I just think being so welcomed by all of the universities um, and I was really impressed with all their English um, and, yeah, just being feeling really welcomed in all these places. And we'll definitely come on to that English question in a minute. And Gary Hughes is Chief Exec at Durham Students' Union. Gary, your highlight of the week? I uh, really loved hearing from everybody the massive focus on student mental health uh, and the really exciting things they're doing that we hadn't even thought of uh, in the UK. Brilliant. So, yes, we start this week with the news that the Office for Students has published a proposed set of expectations on how universities and colleges in England should deal with reports of harassment and all forms of sexual misconduct. It's a pretty comprehensive and quite far-reaching bit of work that directly addresses an issue that students and their representative organisations have been campaigning on for years. Uh, Eve, doubtless you've uh, done lots of reading on this this afternoon. Why don't you kick us off? So the the report is obviously really welcome from the Office for Students and um, it contains a lot of things that uh, certainly students and students unions have been campaigning on for a really long time. Um, Something that was particularly interesting to me from the Bath's uh, perspective, I suppose, is about the um, the role of the governing body and the oversight that they should have over this issue. Um, but it threw up the question to me about the fact that so many of those governing bodies are still uh, pale, male and stale. And what does um, that mean for uh, those governors asking the right questions when it comes to the strategic oversight of this issue? Um, and it also occurred to me that we need to be increasing uh, students' knowledge of this piece of work because it should hopefully increase the confidence that they have to report 
um, to their university when they experience any form of harassment. So, Vicky, there's uh, quite a bit in there, helpfully, I think, about kind of uh, student unions where they exist and student engagement, more on student engagement than perhaps just plonking an officer on a committee. Yeah, I think it goes beyond just having one officer as a representative for all of students, especially with a matter that's this delicate. Um, I think that it's quite a complex problem, harassment in um, the higher education sector generally. There's so many different forms of it, and I don't think it's necessarily just at the student union level that we need to be dealing with this. It's definitely a wider conversation that I think more students need to get involved with, and more students need to get involved with with their institutions because it goes like so much more beyond reporting it to us and seeing what we can do we really need to work collaboratively i think going forward katie although uh this isn't focused uh exclusively on initiations initiations are a type of harassment and obviously you've had some significant problems at, at newcastle in this space is this is this welcome this kind of intervention from the regulator i think definitely in newcastle last year obviously did a lot with the uk report that came out and it was completely adapted into the university and in all our inductions at the start of the year and I think we got a lot from it and I think it's good to have an open space where we talk about it. I think a similar thing with this report is that it's really important and it's about time that we do start talking about it more openly and freely and I think that in Newcastle it has come from the students and I think that's great that it's actually being followed through, it's bottom up and students need to have more of a say and yeah, not just sit on these committees but actually drive the change and students are the change makers and I think this is evidence of that. Yeah, and, and, and Gary, that's interesting, isn't it? Because on the one hand, this is one of the first moments where the Office for Students appears to be actually working on something that students themselves might prioritise. But I guess some universities will be concerned that this represents a kind of regulatory overreach. Yeah, I was uh, really interested in reading uh, the consultation document how... OFS uh, considered taking no action you know that was in the uh, rationale uh, that they published but just imagine if they hadn't like the scandals that have happened at Newcastle um, that Kate was just speaking about but all across the sector I think um, the overreach argument just doesn't hold any water with me I don't think it will hold any water with students Um, the reputation of the sector in this area is so weak like every um, time you open the paper there's a story that suggests this is important and as OFS have pointed out the inconsistencies the lack of um, action some instances um, I think I'm really it would be really upsetting I think if institutions tried to hide away and say we're autonomous we shouldn't have to do this um, when there's so clearly a need for action um, it would be a real shame if they tried to hide behind autonomy as the reason Um, there are good answers we can provide to the consultation but the um, expectations that OFS are out seem entirely reasonable uh, to me, and I think they will do to the most uh, of students' unions and uh, students. And Jazz, I guess, you know, in, you know, one of the things that the consultation touches on is the kind of quality of and training of, uh, you know, the sorts of people that are involved in some of these processes and decisions and, you know, the governance of them. And, you know, I guess, you know, there's an interesting question, isn't there, about uh, an old fashioned culture that says three or four academics can handle, you know, a bit of student graffiti and something a lot more complex going on this time. Yeah, I think um, I completely agree with kind of what everyone said so far. And um, I do think that this is issue that isn't going away Um, and I do think that universities need to um, admit that they probably can't face this alone and they um, probably need some external input to kind of understand these issues um, have further representation across the board not just from students but actually um, getting professionals in who can deal with these issues um, and admitting that they kind of need um, that support for sure. 
And, and Gary, just before we move off this, uh, there is an interesting question directly for students' unions and to some extent, you know, departments of sport, halls. You know, there are... It's, OFS is pretty clear here that if there are... One student complains about another it regards the university responsible. But, you know, I can think of all sorts of universities which effectively delegate lots of student conduct and discipline issues either to their student union or, you know, there are those cases, uh, you know, that case at the Oxford Union uh, the other week. You know, there's all sorts of bits. And I I wonder how that might play out. Yeah, as a um, student union manager, that really interests me because a lot of the activities we will run, we hear reports where... um, things are just unacceptable. I wouldn't go so far as to say that I know any examples of the calibre that we've seen in the press, but, um, you know, the guidance is really clear. It's trying to cover all sorts of ways in which students are harassed um, on campus. What was really clear to me in the consultation was that we can't not work on this. You know, even if this consultation wasn't here, we should have been doing this anyway. Uh, They've exposed a real gap. Um, I don't think we can be in a situation where we try to discipline students in one pocket uh, and leave it, where we don't share data, where we don't have uh, slick processes. I think students' unions themselves have got a real um, call to action here to make sure we are part of ensuring that no space on on campus hides this. And Eve, this, this issue about student coverage is really interesting, isn't it? Because I guess, you know, lots of procedures kind of have a, have a hidden assumption that it's about full-time undergraduates. But this, you know, OFS is really clear about meaning all students. Yeah, definitely. And it's, um, it's something I was really, really pleased to see in the report, especially somewhere like Bath, where uh, 60% of our student body take the third year out on placements. And so to see um, that that sort of diverse range of students and student experiences covered in the report is so important, especially as... Um, certainly from my experience as a representative, it's far more difficult uh, to get that support from your institution if you're not physically there on that campus. And increasingly, the way the sector is going, we're going to see more and more of those students in future years. So it's absolutely integral that they are central to this work moving forward. Now, this week, we've been across the Baltics and Finland to strengthen links with Europe, promote cooperation and steal some ideas. Uh, we had a great time in Riga in Estonia. And while we were there, we got a coffee with Kristel Jakobsen, who's president of their NUS. The political scene is very colourful um, <laughs> right now in Estonia. The government of Estonia and the higher education institutions don't exactly see eye to eye on everything. And everything, I mean, finances. It's It's been kind of tricky since last spring, I would say as the financing of universities has not grown in recent years and it's been uh, quite of a struggle for universities to get by as the universities in general are quite uh, high in the rankings in Europe and for example Tartu University is the best in the Baltics uh, but it's not enough it's, it's just the case that this funding that the universities have from the state is not nearly enough to uphold these positions as great universities and that's why the universities are now looking for extra funding. And where else to look for when the state says we don't have an extra funding to provide you with, then of course the universities turn to the students. <laughs> so the students must have a lot of money to pay for their education. And as the Federation of Estonian Student Unions, we say students don't have that sort of a money to pay. Um, and it, which is actually quite funny again, because when you look at the European scale, then none of the countries actually consider going for paid education 
we, there's exactly the opposite trend. And then there comes Estonia, the Europe's wild card, so to speak, <laughs> that we think that maybe students would like to pay for their higher education. And, and how much are they suggesting students might have to pay in the future? Oh, but that's the thing with government or like any political thing, I would say, in general, they don't have any statistics. They don't have any research based on it or to, to base their ideas, any of it. They say from 3,000 euros a year to 300 a month. So it really varies on curriculum. And we find it again, like a, like a dangerous thing. Cause if you have different uh, payment options for different curriculums, it might affect, for example, if you have a doctor, uh, medicine studies that would, for example, pay like a thousand a month versus some language studies that would cost maybe less. It would define also what students are studying, and I don't think that's reason for a functioning society in general if you start lacking some sort of yeah. areas in your institutions and in your society as a whole. And then just tell us briefly about student support arrangements, so maintenance support and for poorer students, and how does that work, and does it work at all? And I would say it supports not nearly enough. We always aim for more. Uh, but right now there are quite many scholarship for different fields of education uh, in higher education. And if you, if you, for example, go to study uh, a teacher uh, to become a teacher, then as we know in Estonia right now, we are lacking teachers in uh, high schools and secondary schools. So the state understands that and they actually provide higher scholarships and they have actually worked. So this year we had... Uh, um, we filled in all the positions of uh, teacher studies. So it's like a good sign that if there's a lacking of something and the state says it's needed to be filled and the society lacks uh, teachers, then now higher education provides you with these teachers because they get enough scholarships. And well, I mean, it's, I think it's a good thing. Mm. And when we were in uh, Tartu earlier, he was talking about something about um, some fund or loan, we couldn't really uh, work it out, which was all based on how much your parents earned. And so mm. some students <clears throat> some students get married in, in order to get funding. Yes, that's the whole reason to, that young people get married in Estonia. That's true. <laughs> no joke. Uh, but yeah, that's true uh, because uh, it is considered that the marriage part is as well. That, um, if you're a part of a family and... Uh, you can apply for a support of us like some sort of uh, governmental scholarship uh, but it's not much it's 70 euros a month or uh, tops 210 I, I think or 270 or something like that that the state would help you with because your parents don't earn for example the minimum uh, it's their, the state's way of uh, giving support if you're a part of a family and when you get married you create a different kind of family. You create a separate family, and if the post-student people are students in that family, for example, uh, studying in a university, then you need support because none of you are working, uh, and you get the maximum support amount. So happy marriage! <laughs> Extraordinary. Uh, and can you give us a sense of what the kind of debates are within universities? How are universities responding to having less money? What are they doing on their sort of governance and the way they make decisions and so on? These are actually two separate questions. For example, first of all, universities are not happy with what is happening with, uh, uh, with the government right now or what is happening within the state right now. It's not pleasing anybody, uh, least of all the students and the universities. Uh, 
Um, but within the universities, actually, it doesn't stop them from uh, actually going forward with these things still. Uh, so in the major, like the biggest universities right now, University of Tallinn, University of Technology and uh, Tallinn University, uh, both are going through structure changes right now in governance, in their university governance. So, uh, uh, <laughs> so the university governance... Uh, uh, is changing right now, as uh, and they have an example of Tartu University, uh, which means that these uh, supervisory boards and everything is changing, and how the universities are run, and uh, all these bodies that are different, uh, they are now being constructed on the basis of Tartu University, so they are now becoming more and more the same, uh, the, just the university governance part at least. And smaller universities are also struggling because they have less funding, but also the cases with them. Smaller universities right now are just like, they don't have much funding, so it's actually come up that they do consider that maybe how to cut down on costs is to join. Mm. And to find, like, joint curriculums maybe open. If one university offers really good English lessons, for example, or English curriculum or language in general, then they give their students the opportunity to study language there, and they the universities are cooperating a lot more. And I think it's actually a good sign that universities don't only go their own way anymore, that they actually do cooperate in fields that I would have never expected before. And it's, I think, like one good example is uh, Aviation Academy in Tartu, and they have a cooperation with Tartu University on language courses. How are we being viewed by friends and colleagues around Europe at this point? Friends and colleagues. <laughs> For EUL, um, for AOL, it doesn't change much because we're in ESU, European mm. Students' Union, so we still see your representatives. <laughs> it's not that big of a question. If we speak on an institutional level for, uh, for the universities, then it is tricky, uh, especially when it comes to scholarships and on nation national, on national scale. Uh, as I mentioned actually earlier in the presentation that I gave you is that, that the funding is very clear for scholarships and it's mostly always focused around European countries. Like the students who come from European countries, European Union, those countries that belong to the European Union, they do uh, have benefits and they do have, um, they have an advantage when it comes to applying for Estonian higher education institutions, even when they apply for English curriculums. And when now there's a country that we don't actually know too much how, what's going to happen, even though the minister has said repeatedly that it's not going to change anything, it's still going fine. And the recruitment agencies in Estonia that recruit students to go to universities in England, they also say like, it's totally completely fine, don't worry, we're fine, Brexit doesn't mean much, but it does. Mm. Uh, but in the end, it actually does, and we are very aware of that, that, that it does change some things. And, and when you listen to the political side of things, it's still like repeatedly again, fine, fine, fine. But we're just sad. Yeah. <laughs> we're just a little sad, but it's okay if it's what the people want and it's what the people want. Now, next up, a paper from Happy calls for fresh action this week across the education system to improve the UK's woeful performance on young people's acquisition of a second language. The report's author, Megan Bowler, a third-year student in classics, notes that 32% of 16 to 30-year-olds in the UK feel confident reading and writing in another language, compared to an 89% average in other EU countries. Vicky, lead us off on this one. Yeah, I think there's a bit of a 
push at GCSE level for students to sort of take up either French or Spanish. But I think that push probably comes a bit too late for most students. And then by the time you're doing it at GCSE and then A level, you're probably not quite at that standard that you want to be taking at a university. And I think over here, especially as we've been talking to various students from various levels of um, education it's really important that they've been learning it from primary and that it's embedded within them that they have to have at least another language and I found it quite interesting that um Christelle who you just mentioned um she said that she didn't get a job because her Italian wasn't good enough and it was one of seven languages that she knows um which if we came over here and tried to get a job like that we'd be laughed off because I barely know two languages um so it's really interesting to see the how important it is to know more than one language whereas I don't think we have that instilled within us from as young an age and the importance just isn't there. So I suppose to build on that point I completely agree that actually that intervention when it comes to prioritising language learning needs to come much earlier than it is currently Um, but actually what struck me when I read the report that I that I didn't see um, was that actually by the time that Uh, students get into higher education because the higher education is a market and we currently don't have enough people studying languages at that level um, it's likely to be courses like languages that are going to be increasingly shut down across the UK when the market gets more um, hostile and therefore we really need the push much much earlier on and also quite rapidly to prevent that sort of pipeline effect and then the other thing that I thought was really interesting when I was when I was reading the report is the thing that cropped into my head is that we really need to address um, the culture of like British arrogance that will just travel around Europe and everybody will speak our language and we don't even have to bother conversing in their in their native tongue and it's been quite clear as we've been traveling around Europe this week that um, that's the case and even even the you know the hospitality and the welcoming of of everyone that we've seen um, it just feels so much more humble and open and then thinking back to the UK I just think we have this real culture of arrogance which um, I think we need to address at the real core foundation of this issue. Gary, dos cervezas por favor? (laughs) Si, gracias. Um, (laughs) See, interestingly I did actually uh, study A-level Spanish and I think what struck me about what Eve was saying was that Spanish is uh, mentioned as the top language in the report um, and that's great but it does really interest me that we think about modern foreign languages as Western European. I think elsewhere in you know back in London uh, the uh, government's trundling through the Brexit bill and it really interested me that the protections uh, that an amendment trying to seek uh, protection for Erasmus and students abroad was defeated. Now there are you know that's a big complex political debate but it does really interest me that if we want to be competitive in the world if we're open and we're turning outwards um american speak english i suppose um but what are we doing in terms of russian japanese arabic mandarin and the other languages that are mentioned i think i was fortunate enough to go on a research trip to australia a couple of years ago and actually the languages that are taught in schools um there nobody's learning french because they speak it in france and that not many other places. So I'm interested in this report about how um, schools in particular address the challenges of creativity in education, um, of language in education. And I think it's fair to say um, it's good that Michael Gove isn't focusing on this anymore. Um, it's, you know, he's doing some other stuff, I believe, at the moment. Jazz, obviously, as the number of universities that actually teach languages declines, the number of opportunities for undergraduates that aren't studying languages to learn another language declines too. Yeah, I think um, I'm really actually glad this is being brought up as I think it's a a massive issue and uh, we kind of all need to address it. Um, I think 
the lack of um, opportunity is a massive thing. But I think going back to Eve's point about the arrogance of British culture and the biggest thing that I've realised being out here is that we all expect people to speak English. Um, and there's also this negativity around learning language. Like, um, you know, when we used to go on school trips and people would be embarrassed to like kind of speak in the accent or things like that. And actually there's all this negativity around learning something new and making mistakes. Um, and I think that comes from our culture. But actually uh, languages are amazing and they, you know, are a really good tool in um, not just employability, but, you know, widening your networks in the outside world. So I think it's such... Um, an important thing that is being addressed and I think it does start from that really early education and it can only kind of be fixed there because it's a culture change that I think we need. And Kate, you look, you know, you know, Brexit uh, has come up a number of times on the uh, <laughs> on the trip, uh, uh, and uh, we're going to need to think about our international outlook and and you know what we give to graduates, aren't we? I think definitely as a young person on this trip, I think a few of us have felt quite embarrassed about the Brexit question. I'm obviously speaking for myself, but a, a lot of us here as well. Um, and I, I think we're, as young people, we're all aware that this is a very difficult political time. And I think learning languages is only going to open, you know, prospects at, of moving abroad and ability to, you know, look better on the job market. And it is a cultural change, but it will only improve our international outlook. So it's only, you know, it's going to be a positive thing. And it's going to really benefit students in the future, I think. Now, as well as catching up with student reps from university and national bodies, we also caught up with some pan-European types. We found Katrina Cobble, who was VP of ESU, the European Students' Union, in 2018-19 in a bar. And here's what happened. Hi there. We're in a bar in Tallinn, Old Town, right now. And, uh, and I'm here with Katrina Koppel, who was, until recently, the Vice President of the European Students' Union. But she has a long history of involvement in the Estonian student movement. Katrina. How did you get involved in the first place? Well, my involvement started actually when I was already in high school. Um, but I did choose my university by the student union. So when I was uh, choosing between two political science degrees, I went with the one where I knew that the student union was stronger, much more interesting. So I ended up in one of the um, one of the bigger Estonian universities. Uh, sort of what someone would maybe describe as climbing the career ladder through the local student union to the national student union. Uh, as the vice president of the Estonian Student Union, I did up and representing Estonia in the European Student Union and eventually uh, ran for the sort of European Student Union first executive committee and then vice presidency. Um, did also run, run for president but and did end up losing the elections as well. Uh, tough experience in my life. Okay. So... Um when you, were doing, when you were working at a European level, what were the main issues you were dealing with? Well, the major issue, of course, at my time was uh, visa issues plus uh, issues with international students uh, with regulations across the board uh, tightening when it comes to international students' rights to work, rights to study, especially rights to study without massive tuition fees. Uh, it's a massive issue across Europe. A uh, large part of my job for the previous year was also actually dealing with Brexit because a lot of the Brexit regulation was going through the European Union and of course us as the representatives of also UK and Irish students did deal a lot with uh, how that might turn out on a pan-European level. Okay, now I know you're, you're now lecturing and working with the next generation of students. What are they saying about Brexit and things like that? Well, frankly... They don't know what's going to happen with Brexit, and even more frankly, neither do I. So it's, Brexit is a very difficult issue to teach. Uh, when you, as a lecturer, have to well admit that you don't know what's going to happen, you can't give them any definitive information because no one knows what's going to happen, probably not even the people dealing it with it, probably not even the prime minister of the country. Um, of course, as a lecturer, it's always my job to re sort of remain vulnerable when I don't know everything about everything. 
students are always going to have um, a smartphone in the pocket and they can Google any information and be smarter than me in a second. It's more my job to make them discuss, make them think, make them think critically. Uh, when it comes to talking about Brexit during lectures, it's, it's much more a discussion of possible futures, speculation, than it is teaching any definitive knowledge other than the percentages of the referendum. And finally, we thought we'd have a little think about some of the learning from the week. Uh, so who wants to kick us off on their, you know, observations from the week? Um, something that really struck me as we've been going down around all of these unions um, has been when they've when they've done their presentations, liberation and liberation topics don't feature that much automatically unless we've asked about them. And actually, um, I think it, it must have been one of the Lithuanian unions quite openly said, I think the UK is about 20, 30 years ahead on these topics than, than we are. And, and that did seem to be the case when we were talking about issues. Um, I think it was only one of the Estonian unions that, that spoke about LGBT issues, for example, without us asking about it first. And in a weird way, actually, it made me quite reassured that we were heading in the right direction within the UK and that actually perhaps a lot of these uh, Baltic states um, might have that sort of period of uh, time and enlightenment and liberation ahead of them, actually. And, and, and I guess, look, the other thing that we've seen all week are fascinating big national debates about size of the sector, student numbers, whether you give students funding or not, student loans. You know, we've seen all sorts of big contemporary sector debates. And, you know, I've sat there all week thinking, oh, that's not what Philip Auger said in the UK. And so, yeah, 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 I mean, so, you know, I just wondered, you know, your thoughts, folks, uh, on the panel on, you know, some of the things you've seen in terms of the way in which higher education is perhaps thought about in politics or how that's done and so on. Yeah, two things really interesting me about um, the examples we've seen one of which was the um, a few institutions we visited were just having the hundredth birthdays quite a few actually um, and they were um, electing their rectors you know their vice chancellors and the extent to which people spoke about that as a community event was really interesting and inspiring now some of our vice chancellors will be um, elected I'm doing inverted commas here um, by senate or council some will be chief executives and appointed and that's and that's fine for the institutions but it did interest me that it the way our host spoke about it made it seem much more the community came together and decided what it wanted. Like there was one place we visited who are the current rector is going for re-election, but it's contested. There's people from outside the institution going for it. Really interesting. Um, the second thing that really interested me was in Finland, where uh, they spoke about the institutions, the community of academics and students and professional staff. Now, um, at Durham, I'm included in the professional services staff. You know, I go to the Vice Chancellor Summits. You know, they're generally incredibly empowering. But it does really interest me sometimes that you do get, like, helper goblin syndrome. Like, it's, you know, if the professionals could be silent and obedient, that would be really helpful. Um, there's a definite vibe of that sometimes. Like, and we think about institutions as being academics and students. But actually, the extent to which who determines the culture of the community. You know, we've spoken about um, sexual harassment at this in, t- in this podcast, and that is a community intervention. You know, everybody needs to be on board with that. That's about values and what you do when you don't have a procedure. Um, so I think Finland talking about their professional services colleagues as part of the decision-making process. You know, they were a third of Senate. Um, it wasn't students and academics. It was also professionals. And again, like nine out of ten British institutions would burn down if somebody suggested that. But it, but it seems such an obvious idea to think about when you're talking about cross-campus cultures that you include all the people. Um, here they do that. I really wonder what would happen if we did that back in the UK. There's something that's really stayed with me. Uh, for the first few unions that we visited, various people asked about how students are perceived by their local communities. Because in the UK, we always talk about town gown issues. It's rubbish or it's noise or it's drinking or whatever it is. Um, and actually, for the first few unions that we asked, the answers 
suggested to me that they didn't quite understand the concept of the question, i.e. the fact that the students were viewed any differently from anybody else was quite alien. And then um, this morning we were at Turkey University and we asked a similar question and the president said a phrase which was, I think people like students because we are the future. And it was such a simple thing, but I was like, that just, it's not a thing in the UK or it's certainly not a thing in the UK that we see, you know, a narrative in the press or anything. And actually I thought that was quite stark that there seems to be this real significant difference between the way that um, sort of citizens or the public view students in these states that we've been visiting compared to the UK because certainly in the last five years I think students have been uh, demonised somewhat uh, certainly in the press. Um, I think something that we in the UK could probably learn from is that collaborative approach and all of the unions that we've been to have worked like in unison with their universities but also in unison with each other Every union we went to were very aware of what was happening in the other unions around their country, respectively, and also across the region that we've been visiting. And I think it sort of goes to show that there are those strong links that could be had. And I know we've got a lot more universities and unions um, in the UK than they sort of do in the countries over here. But I think something can be said for that collaborative effect. And I think that possibly goes a long way to explaining why there isn't that student problem over here or the perception of students being an issue because all of the students get on with each other there's no there's no rivalry between universities and unions within the same town because they are a student town they are one they are one group and they don't feel like they have to get argy-bargy about their space almost and I think that the national unions are doing a lot to just have the oversight they don't necessarily intervene. They don't necessarily dictate what they should be, what the smaller unions should be doing. But they are that umbrella to look out for all of the unions and just make sure that they're not feeling alone and that they do know what everyone's doing. And I think that sort of constant contact with each other and the fact that they have all of these summits and they meet once a month in the capital to have a chat about what's going on is really inspiring i think as well um something that we picked up in finland today was that we are in finland right <laughs> um was that they have a student nhs um they pay 55 euros a year to be part of this and it's you know obviously separate from their usual health service but it also just shows how much they prioritize you know all, all forms of health you know obviously in the uk and you know across the globe a huge issue at the moment is mental health and i think they are going in the right direction with this the nhs Obviously, the UK NHS is um, strained, always is, probably always will be, um, if we still have it. And, you know, it's great that they, they have prioritised it. They, you know, students pay, you know, a small fee for a year's worth of it. Um, and that they don't have, have these waiting times that we have and, you know, where students in the UK are deteriorating because they're not seen quick enough. And universities are, you know, encouraged to take up their own, well, we all have our own wellbeing services, you know, apart from the NHS. And I think it is quite, it is in a catastrophic place in the UK and I think you know it's absolutely unbelievable that they have their own health services for that for that price. Um, I think one of the uh, key things that I kind of took away um, from the trip was student numbers kind of across the board all of the Baltic states that we went to uh, they all kind of mentioned that they were decreasing in student numbers this was kind of due to um, population issues um, and also uh, history of war things like that but actually I think um, it's something that we're all experiencing and it kind of highlights my point earlier about there's so many issues that we're all kind of facing globally um, and it was just kind of really interesting to hear about those numbers um, and then kind of some of the issues came um, in these countries from um, things like free fees and actually uh, there were dips in uh, I think it was where were we 
uh, yeah, Tallinn that we were in in Estonia, where they were talking about actually the the student numbers dropped when the fees be- uh, the fees became free, and um, which I just find kind of crazy. So there's so many interesting topics about actually maybe free fees isn't the answer and sometimes we look towards that but it actually you know I don't think anyone has the answer for the situation um, and yeah Excellent well that's about it for this week we'll be back in the UK next week with the usual show to find out more about anything we've discussed today in theory you'll find links on the episode page at wonky.com but I doubt it uh, <laughs> I'm not actually sure when I would do you know what I mean it's not like this is nonsense anyway you can definitely leave your thoughts and comments on that page don't forget you can subscribe to us automatically just search for the wonky show on your favourite podcast directory or you'll find the feed you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast and if you think you've got what it takes to be a guest on the show uh, do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch so thanks very much too Vicky Steve Casey Jazz and Gary uh, uh, to the crew from Team Wonky for making the show happen and of course to you for listening right to the end until next week Stay Wonky Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.